0: Hi there. The first part of today's worship was cut off, so this is Pastor Andrew letting you know that this is our worship at Springfield Church of the Brethren for January the 24th. Enjoy the worship. The newsletter for the end of February, deadline is the 26th for anything that you want in. That's this coming Tuesday. If you haven't picked up your giving reports, they are in your mailbox. If you grab them, and you notice there's a problem, contact Don Connor to review and figure out what's going on. If you are at home and you want yours sent to you, contact the church. Uh, It's Becky Eby in the office. She's here on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, and have her mail it out to you. Coming up on February the 1st, we will be having some hymn time following worship. We're going to be trying to do this on the first Sunday of every month, like we had been doing for Advent. So if you want to stay and sing after the benediction, please do starting February the 1st. Also on February the 1st, we are going to be doing some Sunday school downstairs in the uh, fellowship hall starting at 9.30. Mike Connor is going to be teaching that. One last reminder, we collect money for various different projects. One of the ones that I especially love is Heifer Project International. We collect quarters for it. So if you have quarters at home, bring them on in here and you can stick them in our giant quarter collector at the back of the sanctuary. That helps give animals to those in need around the world with the idea that those animals go on to give birth to animals that help the next and so on and so forth going outward. Are there any other announcements you'd like to share today? So a big thank you to everyone who has kept Becky and her sister Robin in their prayers. Robin has had her surgery last Wednesday. The tumor was successfully removed. They're continuing to do some testing, but she'll be starting her radiation in eight to 10 weeks. So that's, that's wonderful. Are there any other joys or concerns you wish to share with the group? Bernita? So continued prayers for Benita's cousin, Earl, um, as he was mentioned last week, has been having falls, and they're unsure as of, of the reasons behind that, and that he may be having many strokes or many seizures. Is also discovered that he has some early stages of dementia right now. So please continue holding them in your prayers. Thank you for all the prayers and thoughts for Linda, Bev's daughter in law, who had some seizures last week. Uh, she is back at home and doing well, though, because of that, she, she won't be able to drive for, for six months, which does make life a little more tricky sometimes. Terry, I am sorry to hear Terry. For those of you at home, Terry's brother, Ron, is put in the ICU unit Because of COVID, it triggered a genetic uh, fibrosis lung issue, which has caused a lot of scarring in his lungs. And even if his breathing gets worse, they won't put him on a ventilator as it won't do him very much help. So we pray for a miracle and we pray for comfort and healing. Mark? I'm glad to hear, Mark, they are able to do that one. Our brother Mark it doesn't have a date for surgery yet, but they are going to do the less invasive form of surgery and put in stents and coils. I'll be praying that you're going to have more surety on dates soon, as well as health. I get that. I get that. So Mark is expecting uh, his daughter-in-law to give birth in the beginning of February, February 8th. They gave him original date of that, and he's hoping that... There isn't a surgery the same day as the baby coming. I get that. You want to see that baby. I am happy for that too, that vaccination, the vaccine is now available to our, our community members who are 80 and over and living at home. And it has been available for those living in, in, uh, facilities as a joy. I, I've talked to at least, uh, one member set this week who who are all scheduled, and I think they probably already got their vaccines. They were excited for that. If there is nothing else to share this morning, if you will join us as we listen to music and prepare to meet God in our hearts and our prayers. If you'll join me in prayer. Holy Creator, we ask you are with our brothers and our sisters and us. In this time, we raise up some, we raise up Earl for healing and comfort and clarity. We thank you for Robin that she's doing so well and ask you'll continue to walk with her. We ask the same for Linda and pray that the next few months won't be too difficult as she navigates a different life. We think of our brother Mark. We ask that the surgery will come sooner than later, but come at the right time and that his body will do well. We thank you that he can go through the easier surgery. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who are able to get the vaccine, to feel more protected, to be more protected we lift up Ron, Terry, and her family. We pray for healing in his lungs. We pray for comfort. We ask that you are present with him and their family. Holy Creator, we know you are with us. We know that you push us to be better, to do better. We ask that we feel that every day, that we continue to grow in you, to be more like the people you called us to be. We thank you, Holy One. Amen. Our scripture today comes from Mark 2, 13 through 17, and I'm going to be reading uh, from the message today. Then Jesus went again to walk along the side of the lake, and again a crowd came to him. He taught them, and strolling along he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, at his work collecting taxes. Jesus said, come along with me. And he came. Later, Jesus and his disciples were at his home having supper with a collection of disreputable guests. Unlikely as it seems, more than a few of them had become his followers. The religious scholars and the Pharisees saw him keeping company and lit into his disciples saying, what kind of example is this? Acting, co- uh, acting cozy with these misfits, Jesus overheard and shot back, "Who needs a doctor, the healthy, or the sick? I am in here, inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit." Amen. We have to remove this ahead of time today. Here we are. So it all kind of starts with the Middle Ages. You know, time builds upon itself. So it started in the Middle Ages, and if you lived then, I could pretty much guess where you fit in the socio-economic ladder, just by the way you were dressed. You know, if if you were a king or a queen or the pope or a cardinal, you'd be dressed lavishly in brilliant colors with red and purple and gold and silver on you. But if you were a peasant, a serf even, the lowest of the low, I expect earth tones, off-whites, browns, and wooden toggles or antlers to keep your clothes on you. And anywhere in between, You know, the better off you were, the higher you were in the social standing, the nicer your clothes were. You know, the blacksmith dressed better than the peasant. The knight dressed better than the blacksmith, and so on and so forth. Now, this also kind of fit how they understood their place in society, how they worked in their world. If you were born a prince and you were destined to become the ruler, that's because God made you a prince and destined you to be a ruler. If you were born a serf, you were destined to be a serf. That was your job. That's what God made you. Now, this started to get some pushback as we entered the Renaissance because all of a sudden, new economic opportunities opened up. And people who previously would have been, you know, you are going to be born poor and a slave, you will die poor in being a slave, suddenly there was an option to not, to earn money. And so people did. And it actually came to be a problem. You couldn't tell who was just a wealthy commoner and who was actual of noble blood. And this caused strain, not only in society, but in faith. Now, side effect of all, this is also, for the first time, lots of people started to read. And they started to talk. They started to sit down and have conversations about faith. They were better educated. And out of the Renaissance grew the Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and oddly enough, King Henry VIII leading a new Christian faith, Protestantism. Now, this led to a new problem. You see, in the old way, the wealthier you were, the nicer you dressed. But Protestantism pushed against being lavish. After all, that's what the Catholic Church did. They spent money on lavish things for themselves. If you look at Renaissance artwork and then compare it to especially like the Dutch masters, you'll notice a change where before people had been wearing bright colors like they had in the Middle Ages with frills and gold. But as you moved into the Protestant age, people started dressed more simply in colors of black and white and gray and brown. It would still look fancy by today's standards. I mean, it's hard to think of an Elizabethan frill around the neck as anything less than fancy, but to them, it was a lot simpler. If you want to get a good idea, just think of the pilgrims, you know, from the Mayflower with their pantaloons and black jackets and a hat, which did not have a buckle on it, but we'll get back to that. So, they were taught to dress simply, but they also had this fabulous wealth, and that caused a lot of strain. It also caused a lot of theological strain. After all, if, if you aren't born into a position, then what did it mean that you were able to rise up and others didn't? This is where Calvin comes back in. Calvin... Calvin's theology is the basis of a lot of the Reformed church movement. We still see it some in the Congregationalist, but we see it heavily in, like, Presbyterians and the Baptist church. He had this idea called predestination. The idea being, okay, God knows everything, God plans everything, therefore, whether you have obtained salvation or not was already determined before you were born. That means whatever life you lived doesn't really matter because either you're already going to go to heaven or you're not, and that was decided for you. Now, that's a really simplistic read. It actually is a little more complex than that, part of it being that if you were one of those who got to have salvation, then you would already show it. It was part of who you were. So if you were one of those predestined for salvation, you would already be a better person. You would already be a wealthier person, a healthier person. It's still a fairly problematic theology in my eyes. That's me. And I think we see that movement as it's continued through and in the modern American prosperity movement. So they believed they were predestined. That's the reason I got rich. And they couldn't help but try to show it off still. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, my my nice suit at home, which is off-the-rack coals, versus, you know, if I had an Armani. (laughs) And that's what was happening. People were finding ways to still dress up, to look better than their brothers and sisters to show off. Now this was a problem that say, for instance, the Puritans of New England tried to answer. And so they set up rules. You couldn't have an ostentatious house. If you had too much ornamentation, too much fanciness to your house, they would fine you. And the same went for your clothes. They had rules like you couldn't have buttons on your knees. You just couldn't, you couldn't have Hat bands, which is why there's no buckles on on actual pilgrims' hats. That was a hat band. You couldn't have that. No gold or silver lace, and no more than three purposeful cuts in your clothing. That one's a little weird. No, the, the New England Protestants weren't worried about some proto-grunge movement that was moving through the youth of America. That didn't happen until the 80s and on the other side of the country in Seattle. No, they were fighting an actual problem that they saw coming out of Europe. Now. Most of us today are wearing clothing of mixed fibers. You're not wearing 100% linen, you know, cotton, plant based. You're not wearing 100% wool. It's a mix of different things, which gives our clothing a lot of stretch, a lot of movement. But if you're wearing, say, a heavy wool coat, the nice, thick, fibrous kind that will keep the rain out, keep the warm in, there's a problem. You can't chop wood. You can't do a lot of work very easily because it has no bend in it. It stops your arm from coming up too high. So their solution was simple. Wear a loose fitting shirt underneath that gives you lots of movement and then cut a slice into your, Let me? Cut a slice. Is it better now? Cut a slice into your, man, I just gotta not move my arm like that. That seems to be the problem into your uh, jacket so that your elbow could bend all the way. And you put one in your back so your back could move forward and backwards all the way. Now this gave the wealthy an idea. They could wear their austere outer garments, those black garments, those gray and brown garments, but then they could show off by wearing fancy clothing underneath that most people couldn't see until you moved just the right way. And so they started investing in very brilliant, expensive underwear. I mean, not just your run-of-the-mill comfy underwear. No, this was stuff made out of silk from as far away as China and India and other exotic locales with brilliant yellows and golds and reds and purples more beautiful than any king would have worn just a few generations before. This was extraordinary underwear. But then they would have to show it off, which, of course, you don't go walking around in your underwear. That's something we still don't do today. But you would cut slices more than just in where you needed more movement, but you put it all around the cuffs, all around the shoulders, the elbows, the hems. So as you walked along, people could get little peeks of your underwear. You actually still see this. If you ever look at, like, a Shakespearean actor dressed in the traditional style, they got those big poofy shoulders and other poofs, and they got stripes everywhere. Those stripes represent the cutting fad of that time. It's meant to represent that you're able to see their brilliantly colored underwear underneath them. Just in case you've ever wondered why they wear those stripes. It really was a a wealth signaling. It was social status signaling. You know, like walking around with a bag that says, I think one of the famous ones is Gucci. You know, having the Gucci symbol, just so people know you've got a real Gucci. It's also, as I said, virtue signaling. It's saying, look at me, I've done well. I'm wealthy. I am part of the high society. I am saved. The pilgrims didn't like that. The the Puritans didn't like that. That wasn't part of them. Yeah. But Jesus is not a fan of this. Jesus is not a fan of virtual, 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 virtue signaling. I mean, you got to jump in the book of Matthew. In Matthew, he's majorly against this. He preaches about it. You know, don't go out there and pray on the side of the road so everyone knows that you're a good prayer. Just go pray. It doesn't matter what others think of you. Don't, look, I am so glad you're giving money to those who need the help. But you don't need your name over top of the hospital wing. Just give the money and be happy with it. That's what Jesus is telling his followers. But it goes beyond that. He challenges the assumptions of the whole socioeconomic ladder, the whole socioeconomic system. And he does it by calling Levi. And then what happens through that? I know I've talked about tax collectors before in the ancient Near East and in the Bible terms, but quick refresher, tax collectors or what they really were were toll collectors, they would collect the taxes on the the trade goods as they moved in and out of towns, were seen as the lowest of the low for men. You know, they, they saw the lowest of the low for women as prostitutes and the lowest of the low for men was tax collecting. You were a Roman collaborator. You were someone who stole from your own people. In a sense, you were a version male of a prostitute. You were giving yourself, you were selling yourself to the Roman government. But Jesus calls Levi. And if you're reading the book of Matthew, Levi's name's Matthew there. And what does this Unclean, unscrupulous Roman collaborator do when he is offered new life. He jumps on it. and not only does he jump on it, he does something unique among all twelve disciples. Okay, to be fair, there's according to the Gospel of John, uh, Andrew is the one who goes and brings Peter into the fold with Jesus but Levi, on the other hand, goes out and he gets all of his friends, all these other tax collectors. And what the, the Bible tells us, it's in Greek, the word is armartoloi, or harmartoloi, which translate as those who sin. Actually, the Greek term is those who miss the mark. That's the Greek word for, that we translate as sin, those who miss the mark, or missing the mark in the verb form. And he brings them all together to meet Jesus and the other disciples. They have a meal together. And if one of the ways that Greek can be read is that not only do they come and they eat and meet with Jesus, but more of them join the movement. More of them become believers, become saved, join this new life. But then there are those who have their purity, they think about all the time. The religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees. And they are a little worried. Jesus is in danger of becoming unclean. And believe it or not, they still really like Jesus. The Pharisees, for the most part, think Jesus is one of their own. And they like him for the most part. But he's going to lose his purity and even worse, his social standing. That's not what you're supposed to do. If you're a good person, then you're a good... You don't, you don't touch these people. You don't interact with them because that's unrighteous. And then Jesus hears this. And he reminds them in a quip. Who does the doctor see? Who does the doctor see? Not the healthy... The doctor isn't here to see the healthy, the doctor is here to see those who need the doctor. That's not an excuse to miss your yearly checkup. You know, it's not like Jesus ignored them completely. If you jump back half a chapter to near the end of the first chapter of Mark, it's in the synagogues that Jesus is preaching and teaching and healing, as well as in the market squares and in people's homes. Jesus is preaching and teaching to everyone, not just the sinners. But it's like triage. You know, I, one of those shows I like to watch over and over again is MASH. I do enjoy MASH. But that's whenever there's some bunch of people coming into the MASH unit, they perform triage. You know, those who have minor wounds, the scrapes, the scratches, the broken bones... They're set aside because they'll be okay for the bit. They don't need that much healing. But those who have massive trauma, those with internal bleeding, with organ damage, they're immediately taken in to get the surgery now, to get as much time put into them as possible. I mean, that's that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus knows that these religious elite, they have their problems. But compared to these people over here, they've only got a broken finger. These people have internal damage. Jesus needs to spend as much time helping them as possible, to working with them, to sitting and having a meal with them. What always strikes me about this story, and it's the same with the Zacchaeus story, it seems that the tax collectors repent. They grab on to the new life promised by Jesus. And and we know with Zacchaeus, he even promises to give the money back that he has grifted over the years. But they seem to keep on being tax collectors, except Levi, of course. You know, they're just going to be better tax collectors. It challenges the religiously, the religiously pure on their assumptions of the socioeconomic norms. I mean, it's probably never crossed their minds that you could be a tax collector and a good follower of God. It's a challenge for all of us, for any of those positions where obviously you can't do X and be faithful to God. You can't do X and be accepted by the family of God. Now, I remember hearing an interview with this pastor. Her name is Nadia Weber Bowles. You might have heard her before. She writes books and goes on radios and TV interviews and whatnot. But I remember hearing an interview back with her before she had written her first book. And she had been working for years in comedy. Comedy is generally a field that's full of a lot of people who have a lot of struggles. It's got a high rate of people who suffer from bipolar disorder or depression or schizophrenia, or drug problems, or alcohol problems, things that stem from those other issues, things that just happen because of hard lives. It's not exactly the happiest field for the people who are actually living in it. But Nadia had a calling, and she didn't know it. She only felt it. For some reason, she was drawn to reading the Bible, to reading the thoughts of theologians, of spiritual leaders. She couldn't quite nail down what God was telling her until the death of a friend. You know, it's like any other, you know, group of workers who see themselves, see each other day after day. You know, they had formed a tight little friendship of these comics in her hometown. And one of those important people to her passed away. And everybody was mourning. It was a young man. He died of self-inflicted And her friends came to her and said, we want you to do a service for us. Why? Because your the one who knows the most. We know that you read the Bible. We know that you pray. We know that you know something, and and you seem to be the best choice. We want someone who knew him to help us. And that's when she heard her call, clearly for the first time, that she was called to minister to those who had always been held at arm's length. And she was one of them. Long story short, she eventually became an ordained Lutheran pastor. And she pastors at a church in Denver, Colorado, called the House of All Sinners and Saints. But I hear Levi's story in her. Someone living at the margin. Someone rejected by the rest of society around her who's seen as dangerous as dirty and just like levi she reaches out and hears god's call and embraces that call and spreads it to all those around her it's not up for us up to us to decide who's in the community and who is not Jesus doesn't say, just hang out with those religious elites who attend synagogue every Saturday, who follow all the rules. No, Jesus says, go hang out with the sinners, too. Go pray with them. Go hold them. Go remind them that they are beloved children of God, too. That may even mean you need to spend more time with them than anyone else. Mark's Jesus continues to challenge, to offer up a different way of living than everyone else thinks is correct. That challenge still lives on for us. So we need to remember, we don't get to decide who's in the community and who's not. No, I, I, it's not like Calvin. Calvin. You know, Calvin, God's already figured out everything and whatever you do doesn't matter. I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. I honestly don't know. But just because all the markers are there that says this person hasn't achieved salvation, how whatever those markers are that we put on it, it's not up to us to simply accept that. Jesus challenges us to preach to teach, to heal, to serve. Whoever is there to invite them to the table, to be invited to their table. So, don't spend money on expensive underwear. Okay, spend that, that's honestly your own choice. <laughs> I spend my money on comfy underwear. That's my rule. But don't worry about virtue signaling. Don't worry about telling everyone else you're saved. God doesn't really care if you got a fish sticker on your bumper and a cross hanging from your neck. God cares that you're living the life you're called to and that you're loving everyone no matter whether everyone thinks they're part of the community or not. Amen. May we be challenged every day to open our eyes and see the community of Jesus and understand just how vast it is and be willing to greet those that seem just on the edges and remember they're part of the family too and that we love them. Amen piano plays